listening to Belt of Truth, Conversations, Arming Laity, powered by the Armor of God Men's Movement. Visit our website at armingmen.com. This is Father Mark Gertner of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. I'm so happy to be here and to support the Belt of Truth podcast. I hope that this podcast always serves as a strengthening of faith for all who listen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our ears, our minds, our hearts for all the gifts that you wish to give us in this time set aside to learn from you, to be reminded that we exist entirely for the praise of your glory. Bless all who will listen to this podcast, those who will share it and invite other people into it, that you might be praised as you deserve. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus the Lord. Amen. Welcome, friends. You're listening to The Belt of Truth. I'm Rob Gregory. Josh, who is this guy? This is Parker, man. Catholicism in the car. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Parker Zerpa. All right. Thank you for being here, Parker. Yeah, you're welcome, guys. Yeah, man. Thanks. I I heard a lot of good things about you. Sounds like you are familiar with the podcasting world, cranking out some major episodes on Catholicism in the car. So a little plug for people to check that out. Yeah, real easy to find. Just type in Catholicism in the car. You'll find it. Yep. (laughs) Awesome, man. I'm kind of on in my own little world over there. You know, I don't really (laughs) do much. It's just me monologuing basically so it's a, it's a lot of fun and you can tell you have fun <laughs> i do yeah, yeah. and you, you've got an incredible demeanor to talk about tough topics in a way that actually you're solution oriented and you know yeah we all have our frustrations but i think you just do it in such a great way that's so. really my goal like a lot of the reason why i started the podcast was well first off i wanted something for my kids to be able to hear in case you know tomorrow i get hit by a bus and uh, yeah. something from their dad that's like like something i'm very passionate about and that will educate them in their faith i mean i'm i don't expect my 5 year old to be able to figure out or future 5 year old to figure out uh, what what i'm all talking about but you know as they get older maybe they'll they'll be able to to kind of listen and take more and more in each time and know that their their dad loved his faith and and was really trying to to live it out as best as he possibly could. You said you love your faith. Why do you love your faith? Yeah, so I I um I'm a cradle Catholic, born and raised. Uh, I was actually baptized by uh, Father Mark Gertner here at St. Vincent's when they used to be in the old the uh, gym. Yeah. Long long time ago. <laughs> and it, Father Mark Gertner was actually a deacon at the time. Oh wow. So and I was Sunday Catholics, nothing super extraordinary, but just really keeping the faith. And once I hit high school, um, I started going to the youth group here at St. Vincent's actually. And that really forced me to think about my faith a lot more deeply as, as it does for a lot of people. Um, you know, you're in the high school environment and <laughs> people are uh, saying, you know, I'm an atheist and I'm a whatever and whoever, what, and, <laughs> and, you know, and you got to figure out what do you believe? You know, you, um, everybody goes through that. And, and I did. And I've always had a real love for the intellectual side of the faith. Um, n- not necessarily taking formal courses, but I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of, of listening to various podcasts, things like that. Throughout that time in my, my high school years, I, um, just fell deeper and deeper in love with the Lord and with, in the, through the sacraments. And it became clear that, that I was being called to discern a, a vocation either to the priesthood or the religious life. And throughout that whole process, uh, which is, which is oftentimes a, a messy process, you know, discerning one's vocation. 
I kind of came to the conclusion that the religious life was for me, and I I joined the barefoot Franciscans that were running around Fort Wayne for a long time. Oh yeah, and uh, I was like, holy crap, these guys are incredible. They just, you know, Rob, I see you're not wearing any shoes right now. <laughs> it's true. You're 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 like making my Franciscanness <laughs> yeah, come out. Yeah, but, um, yeah. So the Belt of Truth podcast is made possible in part by the generous financial support from local Catholic businesses in the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese through the Catholic media company, Our Local Parish. To learn more on how you could support these businesses and watch some powerful interviews with our local priests and lady, go to OurLocalParish.com. Worship local, support local. Thank you, and God bless. 2014, uh, I entered the Franciscans, so just right out, right out of high school. That just deepened my faith more and more, um, particularly on the prayer side of things, and then also on the intellectual side of things. I mean, just, just really, really diving in, diving deep, and growing in love with the Lord. I mean, man, you, I felt like I, I loved God before I became a, before I joined the religious life, but. It was like a whole different ball game. I mean, it re- it really is when you're 24 hours, you know, seven days a week, 365, and you're praying nine nine hours a day. Two of that's mental prayer. The rest of it is is usually the breviary or some or mass or whatever have you. It is religious life is designed just to immerse you deeply into the love of God mm. through many different means. Um, and, and also in many different ways, you know, you have, you have your monastic religious life, your, your cloistered monastics where they, they don't leave the monastery. You also have your itinerant preachers, the mendicants, uh, Franciscans and Dominicans and a few others. And then you have, you have a lot of your apostolic uh, religious orders that, that really focus upon missionary work and things of that nature. And I was in a Franciscan order, like I said. And so they're mendicant, which means that they go out and they beg for everything that they need. Um, but they also live kind of a, a balance between the monastic life and the apostolic life. They generally try the monastic, the, the mendicant orders try to, to kind of blend the two. And, uh, like I said, you know, we, we would do some serious prayer, nine, eight, nine hours of prayer a day. But then, you know, the rest of our day would be spent in the apostolate or, or doing work around the friary or what have you. And it was just, it was just a, an incredible, amazing, amazing experience of deepening my faith and something that I will, uh, forever uh, be immensely grateful to God for. But I, I spent four years with the friars. Um, and in the summer of 2018, I discerned out. As, wow, four years. Yeah, four years. Yep. So from the time I was 18 to when I was 24, my college years were spent as a Franciscan friar. And what was that? In the spring of 2017, so a year and a half thereabouts before I left, uh, the community went through a lot of turmoil. And I've, I've been fairly open about this. The, the head of the community was asked to leave and, and it kind of put a lot of people left um, over the course of three or four months, I believe. We went from having 55 people to having 10. And so it was very, very, very difficult time, but also a, a beautiful time of being able to say to the Lord, you know, Lord, what do you want from me during this this time of suffering, this time of, of, of really tragedy? Because I was seeing the community that I loved and that had, you know, dedicated a lot of my life to that point to really fall apart and trying to figure out, you know, Lord, am I called to be here still? 
And it, it became clear through prayer and through discernment with the other brothers and things of that nature that, that, that I was not called to be there anymore. And I, so I discerned out in order to discern marriage in particular. And, but then unfortunately, about a year later, the community decided to, to disband. And I say unfortunately, although it, you know, in, in the eyes of divine providence, it was definitely a good thing for all involved. But it, it was still, you know, for me, it was still a very deep time of, of suffering. You know, the, those brothers, many, many of whom are still around in this diocese, the diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend. Well, Chris um, Lucius being one Chris of them. Chris Lucius, yep. Father Paulo, Father Lee Allen of Fortin, Ryan Tomosi, Father Ryan Tomosi are among those. And then there's, there's a number of others. A number of us also, a number of the friars also kind of scattered to the four winds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the friendships that we, we developed over that time, uh, particularly the, the 10 of us that were left at the end, I think. And, and then once I left and some others left, the, the last few that were left. I mean, you talk about friendship through suffering and it was just, it was beautiful. You know, how, how the Lord works in all of that. You know, it really gave me a, a wonderful view of how the Lord redeems in, in, in real life, you know, um, how he brings us out of our suffering and how he brings us to greater and better things, even if we don't see it at the time. Mm. Yeah. So I, I knew that, that it was, time to discern marriage. Um, I, it was, it was made very clear to me that I wasn't supposed to be floundering, that I was supposed to discern the next vocation in my life. And I didn't, I didn't waste any time. I, uh, got introduced or reintroduced to a, to an old friend of mine, Maria Till. Um, and we kind of hit it off and started dating. And a year and a half later, we got engaged. Uh, a year after that, we got married and had our first kid within nine months. And, well, 10 months and then, and then just had our second kid eight weeks ago. So, I mean, it's the, the Lord just, he really brings, he brings all things together. And, and I feel like that's, that's been one of the, the biggest things that I've learned in my life so far. I mean, I'm only 28. Seeing how the Lord ties up all the loose ends for all of our lives really is just wonderful. That's awesome. You had mentioned that you had created Catholicism in the car, the, the, the podcast, the video podcast, because you're actually sh- showing your face, driving down the road, right. talking about Catholicism. But right. you had mentioned that you you know, had, had a lot of inspiration to do that, and one of which was to create content for your children. You Over a year and a half, mm-hmm. basically, that you've, you've been doing this, what, what are some of your other inspirations that you wanted to be able to get this recorded? Yeah, so I felt... I, I did feel in particular, and I do still feel this, that there's a lot of strife in the church right now. There's, there's inter-church <laughs> disagreements that, that oftentimes come to a boiling point almost, and, and it causes division. And, and I want to be a balm, uh, to try to see, you know, how can we make these, you know, for, for lack of a better term, warring factions see the light within each other. Um, and this is all sounding probably really like esoteric or something, but <laughs> I mean, it's commendable, but, but uh, it's needed, you know, it, it, trying to pull the two sides together. And I, I've, I've really, the two sides that I've particularly been trying to pull together are kind of what you might say, the traditionalist Catholics, um, your Latin mass folks, and your particularly your conservative Novus Ordo Catholics, all right? Like maybe like your John Paul II generation, your Benedict generation, stuff like that. And trying to pull those two together to not see so much animosity between them because there, there is a fair amount of that, at least at least in a lot of online circles. And it's very unfortunate, you know, that that is human nature. And um, 
trying to to pull them together, try to see, you know, okay, what are the merits of each side and and then try to propose a an option that unites them. This does come to a lot of a head around the liturgy in particular, um, the, the TLM, the traditional Latin mass versus the Novus Ordo. Um, the Novus Ordo being the right, the Roman rite promulgated by Pope Paul VI in 1969, so after Vatican II. I, I guess I, I see all this tension, and, and a lot of the reason why I wanted to start the podcast was to attempt to resolve that tension as best as I could, because warring brothers are never it's never a good situation when we have like interfaith conflicts like yeah. that. I mean, they're inevitable. They always will happen and they always have happened. But as much as we can be, you know, salt and light in those situations is, is really what, uh, what I'm trying to do. And, and that, that was what a lot of my, my later episodes, the ones that became video, uh, podcasts were kind of directed towards was, was trying to resolve a lot of that tension between these two sides of Catholicism as we see it right now. A lot of this, you know, is is supposedly aggravated by a lot of the things that Pope Francis has done and said. Whether one or both sides is taking things out of context or is trying to I, I think there's a lot of people that are that are reading Pope Francis in a way that is antagonistic yeah. against him. And I think that that's, that's extremely problematic uh, in the sense that that is not traditional at all. That's not traditional Catholicism. Now, now we don't want to be like papal yes men. You know, we don't we don't just blindly owe obedience to, to anybody, much much less you know, or uh, to anybody you know, even the Pope. So we we don't owe blind obedience, but we do owe we do owe obedience. And and I think I I, I see particularly the the traditionalist Catholics, those on the the farther end of that spectrum. Okay, creating. Well, I'll say this. I think there's a lack of hope from some of these more extreme factions. There's a lack of hope that God will bring all things together, that God will tie all those loose ends together. Not to say that the conflicts going on right now in the church are unimportant. They certainly are. But you, you have people now claiming that, you know, Pope Francis isn't the Pope, that he's defected from the throne of Peter because he has supposedly committed heresy or something of another. Uh, you have, you have a lot of this coming up. You know, really it's been coming up for the last, 10 years of his pontificate just here and there. And the most, most recently you see with the synod on synodality, people still saying this to me, it, it just, the reasons they give, they don't seem to be terribly clear that Pope Francis has actually crossed the line. It seems like some of these people are waiting for him to trip up almost and are, uh, what would you say? Yeah. They're wanting to see heresy where heresy does not exist. Hmm. I think is and and this is like getting into like the <laughs> the the worst part of this I yeah. think the the worst part of this this whole situation that um but there's a lot of other parts that I think are 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 much more dialogue friendly and that is in particular things about the liturgy. I take the view that the Novus Ordo was not a particularly ideal liturgy when it was promulgated in 1969 by Pope Paul VI. However, I would say that it was certainly his prerogative to do so, and that he had full power and jurisdiction to do so. Um, it is, you know, the Novus Ordo, I would say, is in no way invalid or even illicit. It is perfectly valid. It is perfectly illicit. But I think the, the way in which it is often uh, lived out, the, the way that, that the priest and, and those involved in the liturgy bring it forward is oftentimes unideal. 
And I think that we can take what came before the Novus Ordo, before 1969, which we call the, the, the Tridentine Rite of the Council of Trent, although that is quite a misnomer. The Tridentine Rite, traditional Latin Mass, as we, as we also call it, really is a liturgy that developed from, you know, I think you could, you could say pretty surely the 600s on, just slowly, slowly developed, right? You know, some might even go back as far and say the three or four hundreds, right? And you can still see some really clear evidence of that. But it's a slow development over the course of 1500 years. And then the Council of Trent in the 15, uh, what would that have been, the 1560s, directly after the Council of Trent, I believe, the Pope Pius V at the time said, all other liturgies, because there, there were multiple liturgies that had cropped up over that period of time, multiple different rites. And he said, okay, unless a- any liturgy that is less than 200 years old, so any liturgy that started from 1300 onward, we're going to abrogate it, mm. okay, is what he said. And they kept all the other ones. You know, there, there's multiple. There's a, a lot of the different Catholic rites. You know, you have, you have the Roman rite, but then you have all the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church all under the Pope. A lot of those rites, uh, well, I should say, I should say all of those rites uh, predated 1300, most of them well before that. And then you also have, even in the Roman Church, you have certain rites. You have the Tridentine rite, so-called. Um, you also have uh, a number of others that, that cropped up. Uh, there was one in Spain, uh, that's still still said, and you can only say it in this cer- one certain diocese, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now. But um, you know, even in even in the Roman Church, there are a few variants. You know, there's a Dominican rite, there is, and then the, there's there's a few others too. That's all to say that the Tridentine Mass really does not originate at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, to say Pope Pius V in particular, just said, this is going to be the main liturgy that we're going to use in the Roman Church. So from then on, it, it was the main liturgy, and all the other ones kind of slowly fell by the wayside. Um, and you still see them around today. I mean, I've, I've been to a Dominican Rite Mass. I have too. Yeah, and, and it's very, very similar yeah. uh, to the Tridentine Rite, but it is, it is distinctive. There is so much good that came from that development. I mean, you're talking 1,500 years, at least, of organic development of the liturgy. And then we get to the time of the Second Vatican Council, and I think what we got in Novus Ordo is, in the words of Benedict XVI, is largely a rupture uh, from what came before. It's not contiguous. Um, it's not an organic growth. And he, he talks about in his Pope Benedict XVI, um, back before he was Pope, when he was just Joseph Ratzinger, he wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. And in there, he, he talks about how the church is meant to be a gardener of the liturgy. It's supposed to be an organic thing that has grown up since the time of the apostles, and we're supposed to tend to it. As things grow, they change, they develop, right? It's not static. A gardener doesn't he doesn't garden concrete or something like that that never changes, but uh, it does continually grow and develop and change. But it also doesn't like magically transform into something that looks very different. Okay, you know, in a garden things don't do that. He says, he, ben the, well, Joseph Ratzinger at the time says that what we got out after the Second Vatican Council with the, with the Novus Ordo liturgy was not an organic development. It was largely like the work of an industrialist, he says. And he kind of gives the example that like, it's like you cobbled together a bunch of things from the past and you tried to like force them together into each other. 
And, and it creates something notably inorganic and that just like doesn't feel right, uh, in particular. And I think that, I think that he was very, very wise in, in that analysis. Um, and granted, all this is paraphrasing, right? I would encourage people to go read, uh, his book, Spirit of the Liturgy. It's a wonderful, wonderful work. But I think his idea there is very much corroborated by the acts or the, the history of the Second Vatican Council, or I guess I should say the, the development of the liturgy during the time of the Second Vatican Council. The head of the committee, for lack of a better word, that put together the Novus Ordo liturgy, his name was Anabali Bunini. And he, after a very dramatic um, situation, put together his memoir of exactly how they came about constructing the Novus Ordo. He was the secretary, correct? He was the, that, that is correct. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. I, it, it's been a little while since I visited a lot of this stuff, but he was the secretary. That is correct. And which, which really, I mean, very powerful position. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Certainly. <laughs> yes. Connector of all things. Really. Um, right. And, and he was in a, a very key position to document what was going on. And thankfully he did. And he, this memoir that he wrote, it's 700 something pages. I read it in the spring. I don't do a lot of, reading of actual books, physical books. I find myself, you know, with two kids and everything else going on that it's, it's difficult to find the time for that. But what I do, it, hence my Catholicism in the car podcast is I listen to books, um, on audio in the car. And oftentimes I have to resort to making these audio books myself with, you know, robot AI voices <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. So it's fun. You can listen to them on like triple speed and you can get through <laughs> yeah. way, way fast. And, um, but I, I listened to his, his memoir took me a month to listen to it. You know, it, it just became clear through reading that, you know, this first source document from the man who was present for the vast majority of, of how the Novus Ordo was developed, that it was indeed kind of cobbled together, not without good intentions. So I think based upon the reading that I've done, it seems that the members of the committee were really trying to bring a liturgy forward that was contiguous with the past, but also recovered elements that had been lost. And I just, I think in doing so, in trying to bring, particularly bring it elements from way, way past. I mean, they, they brought, I think it's Eucharistic prayer three. Remember one of the Eucharistic prayers is by one of the church fathers. So we're talking mid first millennia. Mm. They kind of brought that up and, and just kind of resurrected it and plopped it into the Roman liturgy. And it, it, um, I think it bespeaks a type of just inorganic growth. I guess there's really no other way to, to put it. And I think that this is seen particularly when, when you look at how the traditional Latin mass, when you attend it, it's, it's almost seamless in a lot of ways. And it, it focuses much more upon showing us the truth rather than proclaiming to us the truth. And I think that that, for me, that is, that is one of the core aspects of liturgy is that it is primarily, it is supposed to show us the truth, the truth of the faith. It's not supposed to proclaim that to us. I mean, the homily is, it's a part of the liturgy. I mean, we, well, we used to say that actually the liturgy would kind of stop and pause, right? For the homily. It, the homily wasn't actually an, a part of the liturgy and it wasn't even necessary. I think precisely for the fact that the liturgy is meant to show us God. It's not meant to tell us about him. That's what preaching is for. That is what teaching is for. But the liturgy is supposed to be an immersive experience in which we come to contemplate and worship 
truly worship the divine, not just to learn about him. And I think that particular things like turning the priests around to face the people, I think was a, a really grave, well, not, I, I won't go that far. I'll say unfortunate mistake, which, which Benedict XVI also argues for. Not only is it, I think, a historical mistake, there's a lot of assumptions that people made at the time that turned out not to be true about how the liturgy was performed in the past. But it's also like it kind of breaks what the liturgy is supposed to tell us. If the priest is facing us, then his focus is upon us as the laity, just inherently. That is what is shown. Now, we can, the priest can tell us that's not true all he wants, but we primarily learn through non-vocalized behavior. We primarily take in information upon what is shown to us, not what is heard. When we see the priest facing us, I think it automatically creates a sort of confusion that the liturgy is about us. Okay, and that that is where I think we really start to get into problems. And none of this, I, I don't think any of this was intentional, but I think it is the consequence of what happened. And so I've, I've said this multiple times in various venues, but if I was to, to ask three things to change about the Novus Ordo, first and foremost, it would be that we would, we would turn the priest back around so he'd be facing the same way as the congregation. We call that ad orientum posture, as opposed to ad populum towards the people posture. And ad orientum, meaning to the east, is one of the absolute oldest uh, liturgical practices that exists um, and that we have evidence of. Some some have even posited that it it is uh, straight from the apostles themselves, uh, because Jesus promised in Matthew twenty five, right, <laughs> that uh, that he would rise again and come from the east. So the the church, from as far back as we know, prayed towards the east in anticipation of the second coming. So we see in that ad orientum posture how, you know, not only is it ancient, but it tells us something really beautiful about divine revelation, namely that Christ will come again from the East, but then also it tells us something about ourselves as we are postured during the liturgy, that, that it is oriented, that everyone is oriented towards God. We're not oriented towards each other because the liturgy is meant to be worship. And worship is primarily, it really is only given to God. Right, you cannot give worship to anything else other than God. And so, I think our posture is incredibly important in how we uh, proclaim that, uh, just by showing instead of instead of telling. A lot of the a lot of the strife, I think, in the church right now, where the hope is, and I think people just keep missing this. Uh, I, I see this on you know Catholic news media. People get all bent out of shape about. You know, people were getting all bent out of shape about the synod on synodality. They're like, oh my goodness, we're going to be allowing homosexuality into the church and it's going to be terrible. And, you know. Well, that's the theme across everything within the world today is it's like everyone is fighting everyone and there's a polarization where you're either on one side or the other. And it's just, it's just so full of lies. It it is. Yeah. And, and, and I think that we're falling into that in a lot of ways. And, and this, this divide between, you know, your traditionalists and your more conservative. Catholics. And the reason I'm just focusing on those two groups is because the liberal Catholics, I mean, they kind of are on their own little island out there. And these two groups, the conservatives and the traditionalists, don't necessarily pay a whole lot of attention to them. You just kind of try to scoot them into the corner and say, all right, all right, whatever. But And, and again, this the, these categories, liberal, moderate, traditionalist, whatever you want to say, are, you know, they're 
huge sweeping generalizations and it's and and it can be helpful in certain instances to talk about it in that way right but when you're actually coming down to it it those don't matter at all yeah what matters is the ideas that people are bringing forward okay but i i want to kind of focus in upon recently the synod on synodality and just the the scare the the scare that happened with uh some of what people were thinking was going to come out of that Right, this first session of the Synod on Synodality, and they were they were thinking that the the, the blessing of gay marriage was going to be be coming out of it, and luckily, you know, of, of course, actually, I should say that did not happen. Now, why is that? Because the gates of hell will never prevail against the church, and that includes first and foremost, as the leader of the church, that includes the Holy Father. Right, he will not fall into formal heresy. Okay, we that is uh, the Eighth Ecumenical Council, the Fourth Council of Constantinople, said that very clearly. I guess, yeah, and 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 it also said that anyone who tries to claim that the Pope is a heretic, let him be anathema. Okay, now, now there's a whole bunch of different things in there about a lot of different particulars, right? Like we would say that a heretical Pope can only be judged by a sitting Pope. So really, a, a heretical Pope that can only be determined. After the Pope is dead, okay, by a predecessor. I've heard some stories Future. about popes bringing post popes that have passed away out right. of the grave and put on trial. Right, right, and <laughs> that's kind of I don't where, know the details of that, but that's pretty savage, man. That's kind of where some of this came from. These are from some of the earlier church councils in the first millennium, and the fourth council of Constantinople said that at least, at least in their acts, I think, believe it was the seventh session, they said that you know only a a, a living pope can can judge a previous pope. Right, mm-hmm. he is judged by no one. So I think the people that are out there spouting that that the Pope is a heretic and things like that, I think you should read this Fourth Council of Constantinople. You should really think about what you're doing there because that's a very, very serious offense. And you need to, I, I think what it really is, what it comes down to is a lack of faith and a lack of hope in that God will not let the vicar of Christ stray that far, mm. right? I mean, he can be in error. He can even be well, some some people would say he can even be in material heresy, which means it's not intentional, right? He's he's making he's denying a dogma of the faith unintentionally, okay? But he can never go into formal heresy, is what most theologians would argue, okay? Formal heresy being willful and knowing that he's doing it, and that that seems to be utterly clear. And I, I think that we're losing that hope in certain circles, and uh, and I I would just ask that we. Uh, resurrect that and in order to to try to tie up all these loose ends how do we do it like how, i mean i know for one and i think you do a great job of that on your podcast is you you create dialogue and you you talk mm-hmm. about it and you do it in a way that's respectful and you're listening and you're sharing ideas right like i, I think it, yeah. is it that is it more for, well i can tell you i can tell you what i'm trying to do i can't tell you what the rest of us need to do but i think that one of the best ways to resolve this is by talking about these hard issues. Okay. And, and talking about them with, you know, people much, much smart, people much, much smarter than I talking about them. Okay. But, but even amongst just us laity, us like non formally educated in theology folks, right. Talking about these things, bringing them to our pastors and being like, Hey, you know, this seems to be a conflict that we're seeing in the church right now. And how do we come together to, get past this, right? Now, I'm not going to say that's going to take a short amount of time. It's probably going to take a very, very long time. And I think ultimately what's going to need to happen is uh, the church's magisterium is going to need to intervene at some point and clear things up. 
Okay. Yeah. Either through an ecumenical council or a pope making an infallible declaration. Okay. I think that eventually the magisterium is going to need to clear things up because we can only do so much talking at the lower levels. <laughs> okay. yeah, that's a good point. Um, but I think that that discussion is necessary. Um, I think Pope Francis is on to something with this talk of synodality. What discussing these things is very, very important. Now we cannot discuss them like ad nauseum. We can't discuss them like pointlessly, you know, I, I don't think there's any real reason to discuss. There is no real reason to discuss things such as that, that have already been settled. We're not going to discuss is Christ a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God. No, we're not going to discuss those things. Those things have already been settled. We're not going to discuss the assumption or the immaculate conception or the, any other dogmas or uh, infallible doctrines of the faith. We're not going to discuss those. And we don't want to waste our time discussing those because they can't be changed. Okay, so I, I think that is where synodality goes awry in the way it at least appears uh, maybe to be to be being practiced. But these sorts of discussions between disagreeing parties, this this has to happen. They can't just be separated and keep saying I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. We have to we have to dialogue. You know, practically, again, like I said, we're going to need to wait for the magisterium to intervene to to make an actual end to this. Okay. But, but in the meantime, we do what we can do. And I think what that is, is discussion, is discussion between laity, between priests, between clergy and laity, whatever it might be. Getting, getting people that disagree with each other into the same room and <laughs> not letting them out till they, till they come to some sort of a progress. Now that may not always happen, but we have to at least try. We yeah. can't just keep isolating ourselves. It needs to be the attempt. It needs to be the attempt. Exactly. Yeah. As it relates to our ability uh, to find common ground and to get through a lot of this, the battles that are on a regular basis, it seems as if in the media and all of that, are you hopeful that we will find a way as a church, as laity, as individuals with different ideas, are you hopeful that we'll find unity? Oh, I mean, it has to happen. Yeah. There's... It's, it's not a question of hope in the secular sense. I'm not hoping for something that may or may not happen. I'm... It'll happen eventually one way or the other, whether it's in the eschaton after Jesus comes, that's when it happens uh, for sure. Is it going to happen in any like meaningful, are we going to resolve all the conflicts before that happens? No, we're not. Uh, that's just the nature of sin, but it will happen eventually. <laughs> well, Parker, I've enjoyed meeting you. Carl and I, we went to Guadalupe's restaurant uh, yeah. a few months back and I've enjoyed listening to your podcast. I thank you so much for, for being on the show, sharing your wisdom, and we, we just hope to continue to work together with you. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Belt of Truth, powered by the Armor of God Men's Movement, located in Fort Wayne, South Bend Diocese in Fort Wayne, Indiana. For more information about Belt of Truth and Armor of God, visit armingmen.com.